everybody, it's Lonnie. Just a quick heads up, there is some discussion of uh, depression and suicide in today's episode of Still Pretty. If that is something that is a problem for you, that's fine. Just wanted to let you know up front. Thanks so much and hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to Still Pretty, a Buffy the Vampire Slayer podcast from Chipperish Media. I'm story expert Lonnie Diane Rich, and with me here today is Passion of the Nerds, Ian Martin, stepping in for Noelle LaCroix, who has the week off. Ian, how you doing today? Slightly over-caffeinated, but none the worse for wear. Thank you, Lonnie. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Oh, and I just wanted to mention in advance, um, I'm happy to be here, but I am home on a Sunday with a four and a two-year-old. <laughs> So if you hear the little pitter-patter of tiny feet above me, um, we'll just need to go ahead and pretend those are reindeer. Right. We're in a Christmas frame of mind, even though it's, you know, like April or whatever. But <laughs> uh, So it's very much like Christmas in Southern California, then. Very much like that. Uh, Ian is here with me today to talk about Amends, the 10th episode of Season 3, which aired on December 15th, 1998, and was written by Joss Whedon and directed by Joss Whedon. It is not a coincidence that I asked Ian to do this episode with me. Ian's Buffy guide on his YouTube channel, Passion of the Nerd, is amazing. But I think my favorite of all his reviews is Amends. So when Noel needed a well-deserved break, I grabbed him to co-pilot with me. I appreciate that. Uh, my channel can best be summed up as everything I need to know about life I learned by watching television, but really Buffy <laughs> the Vampire Slayer. Uh, there's a handful of most important videos for me on the channel, and Amends is definitely one of them. Mm -hmm. uh, a note to listeners, Still Pretty reserves the right to pull references from anywhere in the entire seven-season run, and as such is fully spoiled. If you haven't seen all of Buffy and are sensitive to spoilers, then you should probably go watch the series all the way through and then come back. The last time you got complacent about your existence, it turned out rather badly. So let's go on patrol. <laughs> Amends, we open with a flashback of Dublin in 1838, as Angelus collects on a debt by killing a terrified man named Daniel. In the present, Angel wakes up from the nightmare and walks around town among Christmas shoppers and carolers. He bumps into Buffy, and as they exchange awkward pleasantries, he sees the man he killed in Dublin all those years ago. Yeah, that can't be good. At school, Buffy is a bit worried about Angel's weirdness, but isn't sure whether she should tell Giles about it. Do you think something's wrong? Maybe you should tell Giles. No, I don't want to bug Giles. He's still kind of twitchy when it comes to the subject of Angel. Oh, it must be that whole Angel killed his girlfriend and tortured him thing. And Giles is pretty petty when it comes to stuff like that. At school, everyone discusses their plans for the holiday break, and Cordelia zaps Xander hard about his family before bragging about going to Aspen and taking off. Willow reminds everyone multiple times that she is Jewish, and then Oz shows up and takes Willow aside to talk. I miss you. Like, every second. Moments like I lost an arm, or worse, a, a torso. So, I think I'd be willing to give it a shot. Buffy goes to the tree lot with Joyce. Joyce wants to invite Faith over for Christmas, but when Buffy mentions inviting Giles, Joyce gets uncomfortable and walks away. Huh, wonder why. 
Buffy continues to look through the tree lot on her own, discovering an odd patch of dead trees, which I'm sure has no significance whatsoever, just quirky Sunnydale being quirky. Cut to a bunch of chanting blinded monks with sigils burned into their eyelids, and Angel wakes up from a bad dream. Buffy goes to Faith to invite her to Christmas Eve dinner, but Faith says she can't. Big party to go to. You know how it is. Angel visits Giles to ask for help, and Giles grabs a crossbow before inviting him in to hear him out. While Angel is trying to explain to Giles what's been happening to him, Jenny's ghost appears behind Giles, freaking Angel out. What? Don't you see her? I can't. Angel goes home and falls asleep, then dreams of a ball where Angelus killed a maid named Margaret. After killing her, he looks up and sees Buffy watching in horror. Angel wakes up from his dream with a gasp, and Buffy wakes up as well. She was in the dream. Angel gets out of bed and sees the ghost of Jenny Callender, who taunts him for a while, then transitions into Daniel. Buffy goes to Giles the next day and reports her dream, asking for Giles' help. He agrees. Xander and Willow show up to help, and they all hit the books, trying to find out why Angel is back. Meanwhile, the ghosts continue to torment Angel. Buffy falls asleep at the library, Angel on the floor, and they each dream of having sex. In the dream, Angel turns and bites Buffy as a blinded monk watches. Angel wakes up to the ghost of Jenny Callender, telling him what to do. Take her. And then you'll be ready to kill her. Giles discovers the source of Angel's torment, the first, as in the first evil, older than everything that is evil, and eviler than everything that has ever been. Something like that. Anyway, the first uses blinded monks called bringers, or harbingers, to do its evil bidding, and Buffy recognizes them from her dream. Buffy goes to Willie the Snitch to find out what he knows, and he says the bringers are underground. Great. Meanwhile, Willow and Oz have a date at her house while her parents are out of town and Willow's got the candles out and the Barry White playing and she's ready to, well, you know. We're alone and we're both mature, younger people. And and so we could, I, I'm ready to, with you, we could do that thing. Oz appreciates the gesture, but tells Willow that she doesn't have to prove anything to him. And does this guy say the wrong thing? Like, ever? No. Because he manages both to turn down Willow's offer and not make her feel bad about it. And we need to figure out a way to factory produce Oz's. Across town, Joyce and Buffy are having Christmas Eve dinner when Faith shows up, ready to hang out. Buffy goes upstairs to retrieve gifts and finds Angel in her bedroom in full-on freakout. Buffy tries to help him, but the first is there wearing Jenny Calendar and trying to get Angel to kill Buffy. I know that you're confused. I think you're the one who's confused. I think you need to. She wants you to taste her. Think of the peace. You'll never have to see us again. Angel, how can I help you? Leave me alone! Buffy leaves Faith to watch over Joyce as she goes to Giles, desperate to help Angel, and he asks if she can kill him again if she has to. Back at the mansion, the first tells Angel that he was born to hurt Buffy, and as long as he's alive, that's what he'll do. He says that he doesn't need to live. All he needs is sunrise, and he heads out into the night. At Giles's, the research turns up useful information. Nothing grows above the bringers. Buffy heads out to the Christmas tree lot and busts through the ground beneath the dead trees. 
She finds the bringers and kills them. And the first is Jenny shows up and tells Buffy that Angel will be dead by sunrise. She searches for him and finds him on a cliff overlooking Sunnydale. She tells him about the bringers, about the first, but he doesn't think that's the point. Angel, please, you have to get inside. It told me to kill you. You were in the dream, you know. It told me to lose my soul in you and become a monster again. I know what it told you. What does it matter? Because I wanted to. Because I want you so badly. I want to take comfort in you. And I know it'll cost me my soul. And a part of me doesn't care. It's not the demon in me that needs killing Buffy. It's the man. Buffy begs Angel to go inside. He tells her that he's weak. And she says everyone's weak. And then he says, Oh, fuck it. It's the best run of dialogue in any show ever. Let's just go ahead and play it. You're weak. Everybody is. Everybody fails. Maybe this evil did bring you back. But if it did, it's because it needs you. And that means that you can hurt it. Angel, you have the power to do real good. To make amends. But if you die now, then all that you ever were was a monster. Angel, please, the sun is coming Just up. Just go. I won't. Don't you think this is simple? You think there's an easy answer? You can never understand what I've done. Now go. You are not staying here. I won't let you. Am I a thing worth saving, huh? Am I a righteous man? The world wants me gone. What about me? I love you so much. And I tried to make you go away. I killed you and it didn't help. And I hate it. I hate that it's so hard. And that you can hurt me so much. I know everything that you did because you did it to me. God, I wish that I wished you dead. I don't. And it's painful, and it's every day. It's what we have to do, and we can do it together. But if you're too much of a coward for that, then burn. If I can't convince you that you belong in this world, then I don't know what can. But do not expect me to watch, and don't expect me to mourn for you, because... It starts to snow, the clouds block the sun, Angel and Buffy stare into the sky dumbfounded, Oz and Willow go to the window and watch the snow fall in amazement, Joyce and Faith step outside and smile, Giles sips tea and has an understated British reaction, Xander snuggles deeper into his sleeping bag, and Buffy and Angel walk through the snowy streets of Sunnydale hand in hand, alive and together, and that's enough for now. All right, so Ian, 
here we are. I am so excited to have you with us here today. As I told you guys, Ian Martin is the host of the popular YouTube channel, Passion of the Nerd, uh, where he is in the process of reviewing every episode of Buffy. He has Buffy and Angel watching guides, and they're absolutely fantastic. Um, he also does other movies and pop culture properties. Absolutely check it out. That's Passion of the Nerd. Do the search on YouTube. Um, and right now, Ian and I are in the middle of working on a collaborative project that we're going to eventually be able to launch because, you know, we both have tons of time for that kind of thing. Um, but when Ms. Noel's schedule got tight, I decided to pull him in to talk about amends, um, which we were going to have him guest on with us anyway, because his Buffy guide to amends is so amazing. So Ian, thank you so much for stepping in and uh, and filling Noel's chunky heels today. I mean, you're actually co-hosting a show that you've never even guested on before. Oh, yeah, That's pretty neat. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. Uh, one like confession that I have to make before we get started talking about amends is um, that really up until like fairly recently, amends was not one of my favorite episodes. Um, flashbacks are a device that in general are not used well. I will say that Buffy uses them usually better than most writers do but flashbacks tend to be this kind of cheap writing device that people go to when they want to just you know put in some exposition explain all this backstory often it's backstory that doesn't really necessarily need explaining or need that much time um and so as a device it generally tends to be like one of the weaker uh narrative devices out there so whenever i see i usually get really really annoyed um and the fight at the end for me between buffy and angel while it is one of my favorite moments in all of Buffy now, used to feel like really melodramatic and overcooked to me. And when the snow starts falling in this moment of miracle redemption, <laughs> I mean, I just used to roll my eyes at it all the time. And now... Like, I don't know, like, I love the concept of first evil. I talked about that when I did uh, Buffy season seven at the beginning of Still Pretty. Um, and uh, and it's still one of the concepts that I really, really love. And I'm glad that they kind of, um, they brought that back or they will bring it back. It was interesting here and interesting enough, I think, that it deserves to be the big bad of its own season, especially because it's like the most evil that has ever eviled, you know, <laughs> which feels like kind of a big deal. Um but now all that stuff that seemed so melodramatic is really deeply touching. And even this like snow in a heat wave miracle ending doesn't bother me the way that it used to. And I'm curious about your response, Ian. Um, how have you, has, has your feelings about amends changed or, over time? Or is it something that you loved right from the start? Well, a little bit. Um, I think that the um, there's a quote by Whedon that I was trying to find the original reference for where he says there will never be a very special episode of Buffy, um, referring to the fact that she's never going to have a caffeine pill addiction for one episode, uh, Saved by the Bell style, or... Um, right, well, we did have Beer Bad. We did have Beer Bad, exactly. I mean, that that's always been... Ever since I've heard that uh, quote, it has struck me over and over again how many very special episodes of Buffy there actually are. Right. And certainly the Capra-esque... Uh, uh, Ebenezer Scrooge for Angel journey through his bad deeds yes. is w a very special episode of the show. I mean, yes. the show kind of uh, abandons Buffy's perspective to some degree in favor <laughs> of um, Angel and what he's been through. But the truth is that I kind of like schmaltz. Yes. Uh, and so even when I was just considering the episode... Um, surface style without having uh 
written a script about it or or looked into it any further i i really kind of loved it the uh the 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 melodrama at the end of it is is very hardcore bangel speak Mm -hmm. but um once there's a philosophical context applied to it uh it kind of breaks my heart strong is fighting uh lands like a ton of bricks Mm-hmm. But um, I get it. I I get it. Uh, definitely the uh, I, I don't know the very special the the very special episode phenomena is kind of a strange one, isn't it? Beer Bad was the episode they wrote to receive government money, right? They got, which they ended up not getting. <laughs> yeah, which they didn't get because they decided, yeah. well, we'd rather tell the story the way we want to tell it. But yeah, it does seem to me that there are there are a lot of episodes like that. But I always kind of love Demens because I I love the jimmy stewart uh wonderful life kind of that kind of trope which is what this whole episode seems to be about yeah mm-hmm. yeah no i hate it's a wonderful life too i i feel like <laughs> i feel like there's something i also hate the muppets like people have told me that my soul is dead inside and i think there may be something to that like i don't know there's just something about that that i just like i it's a wonderful life makes me cringe every time the stuff that like is so close to the bone is so difficult for me. But the more time I spend with amends, the more I like it. And then I watched your review. And I'd actually like to have you do like the quick run. You know, like, I mean, seriously, guys, this is insane. He brings in Camus. <laughs> you know, he brings in Sisyphus. Um, very, very cool stuff. So would you mind kind of talking about your response? You know, like your overall philosophical response to amends? I, well, yeah, well, I wanted to say, I, I think what you're describing is whimsy. Uh, it's very, very, the Muppets are very whimsical. The episode is very, very heavy on whimsy. Um, flashbacks on Buffy are very whimsical, uh, sort of just by their nature. Yeah, Um, they can be. The other odd thing too, is that, that, um, my subscribers and I in chatting have noticed a rule of thumb and just kind of generally speaking, we feel like when there's an episode heavy on flashback, it's generally one of the better episodes, uh, be- mm-hmm. becoming part one. And um, what's the one in season five with Spike? Fool for Love. Fool for Love. The best episode ever. Best yes. episode ever, but it's incredibly heavy on, on flashback. And- it is, but there's purpose to it. Like, right. So, I mean, this is the thing. Like, I teach screenwriting, you know, and, mm-hmm. um, and so because I work with a lot of beginning writers, like, before they've had the bad habits beaten out of them, you know, you end up getting a lot of that kind of stuff where people just go to flashback for, you know, for exposition and it's, it's cheap and it's lazy and it's all of these really terrible things. You have to kind of beat that out of people. So I've been teaching writing for so long that whenever I see a flashback in any context, my first response is, Oh dear God, this shit again. Right. (laughs) And sometimes, sometimes it's legit. Like I think that over an angel, we use flashback a bit too much just because we want to see Darla. And you know what? I get it. I want to see Darla too. Yeah. Like I will go back in time to see Darla and I appreciate that. Um, but it doesn't really do much for the story itself. Whereas in Fool for Love, it's the whole point of the story. So I think that you can you can legit use it there. And Amends too. Amends absolutely has a narrative purpose for the flashback. So it gets a pass as well. And it fully gets a pass. Like the flashback here is completely legit. It's good. Um, but there are just certain like devices that whenever I see them, part of me is going to like, I, I'm, my eye is going to start to twitch a little bit. And this is one of them. I was going to say one of the, um, one of those I'm using quotation marks for me is, uh, 
are dream sequences. Gener oh, me too. Yeah, generally speaking, in <laughs> mm -hmm. when I see a dream sequence in something, it's either a cheat, especially in a horror movie, mm -hmm. or um, just not particularly additive. And Buffy is another exception to that. There's a whole episode that's a dream sequence in Restless. Um, and to me, that's one of the more artistically fascinating episodes of the show in the way it informs the character. It's just a character study. Um, so I don't know if you feel the same way about dream sequences in regards to Buffy. Yes. Miles well, no, to go. okay, not with regards to Buffy. Dream sequences in general, I feel like, okay, and here's another thing, Ian, I'm just like sharing all of my darkness with you today. Um, sure. I also really don't like poetry. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think, I think I'm dark and broken inside is what I'm saying. But, um, but no, like, okay, uh, dream sequences to me are have this kind of shared DNA with bad poetry, you know, and I'm not saying like, there's good poetry out there. There's stuff out there that I like, I hate Emily Dickinson. But like, you know, aside from that, like, there's, there's, there's poetry out there. I like Dunn, there's poetry out there that's good. Like, I'm not saying it's all bad. Um, but I'm saying that it's so easy to do badly and to hide behind it as some kind of inscrutable genius. Like, here is my ode to peanut butter and you can't understand what it symbolizes because you don't understand the genius, but it means something. Like, the thing is, in Restless, Restless, I don't care for. I never have cared for it. Yeah, that's fair. Um, because it does feel like a lot of that kind of thing. Like, here is all this, you know, representative stuff. And the freaking, like, I, some of it is okay. Some of it I can handle. But then when they got the cheese man, the cheese man drives me crazy. <laughs> I wear the cheese. It does not. What the fuck is that? Like, it, just, it feels like almost self-referential mocking to me, which I can actually take if that's what it is. But there's, there's just some stuff. So poetry makes me cringe because it's so easy to do badly and it's so easy to hide behind when people don't don't like it or understand it that oh you just don't get my genius and it, it also feels like a shortcut to depth you know that people like sure. put all these symbols in there and they're like here's this dream sequence and here's all this and so now it means all of these things and look at my depth and it, it becomes performative depth as opposed to actual literal depth um so a dream sequence in and of itself like a flashback like voiceover like you know a uh, fractured tease which is another one of the things that i hate um well, you know the thing where it opens in the middle of the the business and then it says 36 hours earlier like, sure i hate that stuff that definitely feels like a cheat to me yeah. So there are ways to do it, I think, really, really well. Um, but, you know, long story short, that's pretty much the list of devices that make me insane because people do use them poorly. And so Restless is something I'm going to have to kind of contend with when we get there at the end of season four. Noelle, my co-host, loves Restless. I think she loves Restless. As I recall, she does. Um, and a lot of people do. And whenever I say how much I hate Restless, I get the same response that I get with the Muppets. I get the same response that I get with poetry. <laughs> Your soul is dark and black, Lonnie. What is wrong with you, Lonnie? And I'm just saying it's just maybe that's true. Maybe my soul is dark and black but it's just how I feel. <laughs> I mean, having a dark and black soul and liking Buffy is kind of redundant. Right. <laughs> so anyone pointing that out, I feel like they're sort of missing the point. Right. Uh, but it's I get it. Possible. I get it. And uh, I, was, I was thinking I get to open uh, Buffy versus Dracula soon, and mm -hmm. I've had the idea in my head for two years now for the opening of that video, and it's a callback to... Um, Graduation Day Part Two, mm -hmm. which to me, based on based on the evidence of your 
I don't want to say rants, but, you know, uh, momentary. <laughs> no, it's totally a rant. I do that all the time. We'll call it sidebar about uh, uh, dreams and poetry. There's a line that Faith has in a dream that says, Miles to go, uh, counting down from 730. Mm-hmm. And Miles to go is a reference to Robert Frost's poem, uh, Stopping by Woods on a Snowy Evening, mm-hmm. uh, which will be the opening to Buffy versus Dracula and the way that poem frames uh, that moment to the gift. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, I was just amused by the idea of a poem in a dream sequence being your nightmare. <laughs> I know, basically, yes. All you got to do is add in a voiceover, and then I'm just going to need, like, the biggest bottle of whiskey. <laughs> but it can't be done well. Uh, well, again, that sounds redundant. <laughs> the biggest <laughs> bottle of whiskey sounds pretty good with the Dark Soul and watching Buffy. There you go. It all it all comes together. So... uh this this let me do the uh, existentialism absurdism Camus and syphilis bit. Yes, uh, I mean, I mean Sisyphus <laughs> bit. So um, first of all, it's no secret that Whedon puts a very major emphasis on theme. There's a wonderful Nerdist podcast, uh, which was a mutant enemy writers reunion, and mm-hmm. both David Fury and I believe it was Jane Espenson commented on how once they moved, they'd never have worked on a show where someone put as much emphasis on theme as Whedon did. Mm-hmm. Um, so that being said, um, there's a three-episode trilogy which kind of represents um, existentialism and more specifically his philosophy on on absurdism, and that is The Wish, mm-hmm. Amends, and Gingerbread. Mm-hmm. Now, before I get into it, I just want to give proper credit. Uh, when I first watched Buffy, I was aware that I had seen something rich with a perspective on how to live life, not only what life was about, but sort of a way of approaching and attacking life or or a way of distilling meaning from life. Mm-hmm. But um, I didn't really have access to that. So the first book that I reached out and read was Mark Field's book, uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Myth, Metaphor, and Morality, which mm-hmm. lays out a lot of this beautifully, if you're looking for something after this to to go and pick up. Um, so, within the existential dilemma, the universe is chaotic and meaningless, but we as human beings can't help but search for meaning and meaning that is inherent to life. Mm-hmm. Um, so, that I mean, that's sort of functional existentialism. Uh, that imbalance is something that Albert Camus uh, called the absurd. And one of the models he used for talking about um, absurdism was the myth of Sisyphus. Mm-hmm. So, Sisyphus was a man condemned by the gods to push a rock up a hill. Once the rock reached the top of the hill, it would roll back down to the bottom and Sisyphus would go and get it. Forever. (laughs) Now, why on earth, Camus wondered, does Sisyphus continue to do this? Why not sit at the top of the hill? Why not give up? Mm -hmm. Um, Camus at one point said that there's one serious philosophical problem The quote specifically is, there is one truly serious philosophical problem, and that is suicide. Judging whether life is or is not worth living amounts to answering the fundamental question of philosophy. All the rest, whether or not the world has three dimensions, whether the mind has nine or twelve categories, comes after. So at the end of Amends, we get Angel at the top of the hill with a big rock next to him waiting for the sun to come up, Mm -hmm. and Buffy arguing for him to go and get his rock. 
Angel's existential crisis uh, was first set up in Lover's Walk when Spike is spying on him through the window. There's a very deliberate shot that pans up from him reading Nausea by Jean-Paul Sartre. Sartre? Either way, I'm going to get that wrong. I always get it wrong. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And Joss said in the episode commentary for the Firefly episode, Objects in Space, uh, that that book was uh, the most important book he'd ever read. Mm-hmm. Um, and in Amends specifically, uh, Angel says, I need to know why I'm here, mm-hmm. which is very self-evidently the quest for meaning. What is the meaning? What is the purpose? Why are we here? Mm-hmm. So um, Camus postulated three answers that we have to that question, and that's what gives you the uh the existential trilogy here uh, with The Wish, Amends, and Gingerbread. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the first was suicide, um, and that's Amends. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he kind of threw that answer out the door because he suicide renders your life absurd. Mm-hmm. It doesn't answer the question of uh, meaning so much as eliminate it. Right. Uh, and, and that's referenced by Buffy's line at the end, if you die now, then all you ever were was a monster. Mm-hmm. Since um, sort of Buffy's rock is being the slayer, monsters are the chaotic universe. And if Angel kills himself, then that renders his life um, just part of the chaos and noise of the meaningless universe. Mm-hmm. Um, existentialism is not is not mutually exclusive with a belief in God. And so um, Kierkegaard was a very famous existentialist. Um, and so the uh, Camus second solution was the leap of faith not necessarily a leap uh, a faith in god or a belief in in that but a um a belief in something unseen mm-hmm. and so you get that in the wish with um when i'm drawing a blank all of a sudden uh, anya. anya thank yes. you when anya uh when anya says to to giles how do you know the other world is any better than this he says because it has to be he has no visual evidence he has no um proof that what he's about to do is going to make the world any better he has faith mm-hmm. uh that it's true um he's not able to see what the world was like before cordy's wish right mm-hmm. so that's suicide and the leap of faith and the third option is embracing things uh the meaningless universe but continuing the hunt for meaning regardless mm-hmm. um and that's gingerbread mm-hmm. so in gingerbread buffy and angel are having a conversation and buffy says uh angel says i do know there are things worth fighting for and buffy says but we'll never win and angel says we never will that's not why we fight we do it because there are things worth fighting for mm-hmm. so mm, there is no intrinsic meaning. There is no destination. There is no arrival. It's the fight itself that is the value. It is the search for meaning that creates meaning in and of itself. Um, and the my my uh, my way of thinking of it was by embracing things as they are, we free ourselves from the despair over how they are not. Mm-hmm. Gradually accepting that we as human beings are compelled to search for meaning in a meaningless universe allows meaning to arise from the hunt itself rather than the destination. Mm-hmm. And that's the existential trilogy and sort of um, how that was layered into these three episodes. It's most evident in Amends, which is the Whedon written and directed one, of course. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But but it's no coincidence that 
Camus had those three ideas and these three episodes all line up the way they do. It's really funny because I'm going to talk about this like in the next episode when we talk about gingerbread. Um, But that one scene in gingerbread, gingerbread, which is a, I don't know, I feel a substandard episode. It's a very season two episode (laughs) is the way I would put it. It's not great. Um, It's weird. And there's, and I will absolutely, we're going to talk about that next week, but, um, but there's that one scene you know, that one huge philosophical scene, which, by the way, like under underlines everything that Angel the series becomes, right? Because Angel is always about the why. He's about the philosophy. What does it mean? You know, what it is is never as important to him as what does it mean? And so it's really interesting because I had never really thought about those three because I know nothing about Camus aside from what you just said in, in this thing right here. Um, and uh, so I, I love that the way all that lines up with these, these ideas of philosophy. And I do think that, you know, you're talking about how, you know, uh, Jane Espenson was saying that um, no, no other, you know, showrunner has been so involved in theme or, or a theme has been such an important part of, of telling the story. And I think that that, may actually be a big part of the reason why Buffy is what it is because what it means is so important. Yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why it has such a long tail. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, the, what it is to be a teenager and the, 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 the challenges that they face and all of that is certainly now dated. Um, I was wondering what Buffy's Instagram account might look like and what <laughs> Xander might be tweeting about. Sure. But the, uh, but the conversation about what makes life worth living, what makes life meaningful and yeah. rich um, is timeless. And I think that's, that's, again, that's one of the reasons why the show has such a long tail other mm-hmm. than brilliance in many other regards. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's really, it's incredible to be able to kind of pull all of that out. And I also love the fact that Go Get Your Rock has kind of become a thing, you know, with, with your community over on your channel, that Go yeah. Get Your Rock is this is this really important, you know, kind of call to doing the thing, whatever your thing is, do that yeah, thing. Well, like, yeah, well, like I said, I think that, that um, my uh, shtick, mm-hmm. such as it is, is... Um, uh, everything I need to know about life I learned from by watching television. Mm-hmm. And so par- the first part of that is sort of the academic analysis, um, uh, talking about Camus, talking about um, uh, existentialism, talking about psychology. I, we do a lot of psychology. Mm-hmm. But then um, tying it back into the melodrama. I mean, the, the emotions are sort of what make all of that digestible yeah mm-hmm. uh so that scene at the end when she says strong is fighting if you apply that to your once you have these ideas in hand and you apply strong is fighting and you hear her say that emotionally and it mm-hmm. shakes you up it's easier to see the value of these ideas in your own life oh yeah um and so at various there's i mean i have sort of an existential track of videos through uh, a philosophical track of videos through my own channel, um, Lie to Me, Amends. And in 5x5, five five, I talk about my own reason to go and get the rock. Mm-hmm. And I just love that, like you said, people who follow me now know what that means. Yeah. And I've had many people tell me that um, these videos were their impetus for going and reading mm-hmm. Camus. And for your listeners, by the way, um, The Myth of Sisyphus, I believe, is a three-page essay 
and it is gorgeous. <laughs> so um, if any of these ideas interest you, that's a good place to start. All right, great. Maybe we'll all do a little reading on the Discord channel and everybody can read Camus. Um, it'll make me feel a lot smarter. I don't know anything about it. So it's one of those things that like, I really want to start learning about because there's so much of it. it it's so applicable, especially to somebody who's consciously pulling those threads in the way that Whedon is. And it gives me a whole new element of Buffy that I can appreciate now. Well, that's the wonderful thing. I mean, I, I've read some Sartre and to me it reads like stereo instructions. Mm-hmm. Um you know, there's yeah. there's there's the blueprint, the diagram of how to live, and that's uh, that's tedious. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Camus' writing itself is gorgeous, oh, um, and I included in my amends video a, a few quotes of his. Mm-hmm. Um, so that so that's a good place to start. But I I I, I first uh, was lit up by philosophy in college myself, mm-hmm. and I think it's one of those things that even people who say they don't like don't realize that they use. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. the question of, of how to live a meaningful life and why is life worth living is something that everyone has to answer on a fundamental level. Right. And, mm-hmm. and so to do it, but to do it within the context of fiction is disarming. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's why it's so beautiful in the context of the show. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, you walk up to someone and you say to them, what is the meaning of your life? They're like, what are you doing on my doorstep? Leave me alone. And they slam the door in your face. But when you ground that context in characters that we love and care about, mm-hmm. and you offer at a particular perspective, it's it opens us up to say, well, how does this apply to me? And how does this apply to my own life? And that's powerful. I think that's that's really uh, compelling. Yeah. Well, fiction, I mean, I, you know, my whole background is um, story and narrative and studying all of that and kind of, and, and talking to other people about it. And I open up, I have a college class that I teach. And on the first day I go in and I'm like, you don't understand story is the most powerful force on earth. And then when I start explaining to people all of the things that story can do, you know, it, it's life and death, but it's also education, it's philosophy, it's emotional healing, it does everything. Like, we think that we go to story just for entertainment, and it's nothing, and it's fluff, but there's so sure. much more going on, um, and there's so much more happening, and people, and that's uh, that's part of the reason why it's so powerful, is because people don't, their their armor is down around it. You know, they're like, Definitely. oh, I'm just watching a TV show. But it really is more than that. Now, I will say some, you know, pieces do more deliberately with that. But almost everything is an examination of something. At the very least, our stories are a reflection of us back on ourselves, you know. Um, yeah. So it's always a mirror to hold up to, you know, to who we really are. And that's the thing that, that I absolutely love about it. And, and learning about philosophy is one of the things that I've really wanted to get into because I think it does... There's so much stuff happening in philosophy that happens in our stories. It's just coming at it from a different direction and knowing all of these people. Plus, it makes you sound really smart when you're like, <laughs> oh, you know, as Camus said in the myth of Sisyphus, right? You know, um, yeah. it's, it's, it impresses people at parties. I'm just saying you pull that out of your back pocket. Um, but also something that can impress people at parties is that you pissed off a lot of people on Tumblr, didn't you? Oh, <laughs> yes. Uh, I like your segue. Thank you. Thank you. I'm real good at that. I'm a professional. Uh, well, I mean, I'm, I'm structure story structure is uh, not necessarily one of my emphasis. Actually, neither is philosophy. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm mostly I just play jazz and and talk about what I feel like mm-hmm. uh, when it comes to my channel. But there was a, you know, so there's multiple <laughs> levels to this, right? I uh-huh. need to set this, try and set this up. All right. 
Uh, and bear with me, everyone. I'm not actually saying what I'm about to say. <laughs> okay? <laughs> Don't send me letters. Uh, the, ta- the show has text and subtext, and sometimes subtext of subtext. So, mm-hmm. uh, in season two, Buffy had a boyfriend. Mm-hmm. They slept together, and the boyfriend turned into a major dick. Mm-hmm. Right? That is a reading of that season. Yes. Um, boyfriend comes back to her. Later in life, in season mm-hmm. three, reformed, mm-hmm. they start up again, and Buffy decides that the relationship is bad for them both and tries to end it. Boyfriend gets suicidal without her, mm-hmm. and so Buffy allows the relationship to start up again. And then the boyfriend ends it, <laughs> right before prom, no less. <laughs> now, worst boyfriend ever, or worst <laughs> boyfriend ever. <laughs> Well, Kelly Jones, the host of the Angel series, and I have this run that we do, which is, but mama, I love him. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that's kind of what this comes down to. I mean, yeah, like on its face, you look at that. That's, I mean, first of all, all true. No lies right. detected. All, exactly. Right? All true, right? Yeah, yeah. And even we, even Whedon has said it, uh, there's a Innocence is, has a, a wonderful episode commentary, mm-hmm. and there's a mm-hmm. behind the scenes for that one. And he's talking about how that the scene where Angel has no shirt on and says Buffy seemed like a pro in bed, oh, which is a horrible, dark uh, yeah. uh, inference, mm-hmm. um, is echoing the boyfriend who was just in it for sex and then sort of gets bored and and uh goes on his dickish way i don't know how to end that that (laughs) sentence in particular um so sort of carrying that uh model through it it, i'm not i mean i get the the specifics that that um we need to consider Mm -hmm. but broadly speaking it also kind of highlights one of my issues with season three which Mm -hmm. this episode is the beginning of. And this mm-hmm. is really my only issue with um, this episode itself. Um, and that is that it feels like a regression of Buffy's character a bit mm-hmm. in the name of getting Angel to his show. Yeah. Um, her, I love her bit at the end of Lover's Walk. Mm-hmm. It's very powerful. Um, it's She's taking control of of um, the situation where she's been sort of acting purely on impulse and she says, we're not friends. Mm-hmm. Tell me you don't love me. And that's the only way we we can spend time together. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, I get why th- those priorities would change after amends. Um, right. Mm-hmm. I, I get why some a, a loved one in crisis would alter your priorities, certainly. Right. Um, but it gets to the point in the prom where they're talk- she's talking about their life together, their future together. They're- I mean, we're back in season two yeah. we, uh, when she reptile boy when she's leaning against uh, the the gravestone and says, "Angel, when I look into the future, all I see is you." Right. And I I, I find that a little frustrating. I guess. No, I absolutely think you're right. Um, the end of Lovers Walk is so great. Tell me you don't love me. And that, of course, is a reprise of the line that they had in I Only Have Eyes for You, right? You know, right. tell me you don't love me. Um, and so then there's this moment, of course, where Angel is in crisis. Um, and the thing is that on its face, 
you know, boyfriend threatened suicide, girlfriend goes back to him, <laughs> then he's terrible. Like, that's all terrible. And it is unfortunately something that happens a lot. Um, sure. But because in amends, he isn't threatening suicide to get her back. He actually intends to kill himself to save her. Because you were born to hurt her and, you know, and you will always hurt her. That's what you will always do. And the only way that he cannot hurt her is by killing himself. It also isn't his decision to not die. He stays there. It's a miracle, you know? Yeah, he does not. That's I, that was something I forgot to mention in mm-hmm. the, the existential trilogy is he does not make the choice. Yeah. He doesn't get up and leave. It begins mm-hmm. to snow. Thank you. Powers the be. Right. Which is a whole other thing because choice is always more powerful in narrative Choice is everything, you know? Absolutely. Um, but so so the fact that his choice doesn't change um, and then her choice is like she admits that she loves him. And so this is a moment where she, you know, she says, I love you. I wish I wanted you dead. You know, I don't, Mm -hmm. I love you and that's it. And I can't, you know, I don't know how to deal with that. Like, that's just the reality of it. So here we go from at the end of Lover's Walk, tell me you don't love me, which is a moment for her saying that she loves him, that she's accepted that she loves him and he's accepted that he loves her, but they cannot be together. And this is one of the things like um, false conflict is is a conflict that if you have a conversation it'll go away right you know like (laughs) romeo and juliet no amount of talking is going to make juliet not a capulet that means that you've got strong romantic conflict and so here these two have strong romantic conflict because no matter what he's a vampire she's a slayer she's mortal he's not you know no matter what you've got all of that he can't have kids he can't go out in the day um you know there's all this kind of she's got to get butcher's blood for him all the time you know like all this kind of stuff right so um so no matter matter what Buffy and Angel have real romantic conflict no matter how much you talk about it he's always going to be a vampire you know Um, and that reality is always going to be part of it for them and at the end of Lover's Walk they recognize that (laughs) right they do and it's beautiful and then we go into amends and um, and it is absolutely a retcon like you know because we want the romance because we want Buffy and Angel together (laughs) because we want we want we want because mama I love him like that's (laughs) That's it, you know? So um, so it's basically like we do all this really wonderful stuff that's truly painful, but there's no way. And even if they had, like, if at this point in amends, you know, they she was like, because at, at, at that point where she's like, all I see is you, like, that's teenage melodrama bullshit. But if this was something where it's like, look, I know this milk's got an expiration date, but I need this milk. You know, like for right now, for this moment, if they had 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 like a discussion or something where they said, we know this is this can't be forever. You know, Um, I can fool Giles. I can fool everybody. But apparently I can't fool Spike. And we're going to have a moment where the mayor also brings this up to them. These These are not two stupid people like they know they have no future together. And there's something really wonderfully bittersweet about saying, I can't not be with you. I love you. I understand that this is only for now. I understand this can't be forever. So when she starts picking out, you know, nursery room curtains toward the end of this season, like, I understand why Angel's like, (laughs) yeah, this is not going to work. Like, this is going to be, you know, Um, Buffy knows more than that. Buffy has grown more than that. Buffy has realized more than that. Like, so it is a complete retcon, I think, of her character at this point. But for them to be together, all you'd have to do is have her acknowledging that this is necessarily going to be a temporary situation. 
Well, that's always—I mean—that's always been my frustration—is uh, is I'm like, God damn it! It's her show. She, mm-hmm. what, she should be the one to leave him. Yes. Yes. Uh, hashtag cookie dough shipper. Like the, <laughs> right. the, the that this him leaving her to me. I don't know if it's a protective thing. I don't know exactly what it is, but it, it, the since the show is so, the thing that you said that stands out to me is that um, storytelling is always more powerful with choice, yes. and that that's why existential philosophy is such a beautiful tie to the mm-hmm. show is because mm-hmm. it's all about meaning in life arising through choice. And yeah. when whenever a character says, "I don't have a choice," you know that they're doing the wrong thing. Right. Uh, Oz and Wild at Heart, or mm-hmm. um, uh, Willow after Terra. Right. But it, yeah, it's a it, it's a call out. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a philosophical call out. So for Angel to make the choice <laughs> yes! at the end I of the, in the prom just bugs me to no end. Now I I was not at all serious about. Worst boyfriend ever, of course. Although, I get it. Although you do have it, like no lies detected. Like that is what happens. <laughs> you know? I mean, you got a point. Yeah. Well, I mean, the the you're you point out he doesn't try to kill him. The right. I, I was being deliberately misleading in the way that I laid out the story structure. He does mm-hmm. not threaten to kill himself because Buffy broke up with him. Right. Mm-hmm. So the idea is. So it, uh, you mentioned. Um, Angel show. Uh, mm-hmm. The amends and gingerbread to me have always been Angel the series episode zero. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's the setup for his theme, for the theme of his show, for the idea of redemption. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a line in Angel says to first Jenny, uh, "It wasn't me. A demon isn't a man. I was a man once." And that's a very. This whole episode is very important for understanding Angel's series, as you said. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that is denial. Yeah. Uh, a vampire is not a demon. A vampire is half man, half demon. Mm-hmm. And so the episode suggests that there is a part of his past that he needs to be responsible for. And mm-hmm. that gets into the scene with Giles and all of that, which we should talk about. But um, Angel's show is predicated on the idea that he needs to be redeemed for what happened as Angelus. Mm-hmm. Which it, by itself, I think, can be a tough pill to swallow. So sort of s- story-wise and structurally, I wanted mm-hmm. to bring that up as well with you. Is the Manchurian candidate responsible for the assassination? Right. Um, are Angel and Angelus two separate entities, as we see in Orpheus, or are they the same? Mm-hmm. You know, what is Angel's argument that it wasn't me, a demon isn't a man? Is that viable? And I was curious yeah. for your thoughts on that. Um, you know, it's something that I've, I've wrestled with a lot because, um, I, you know, I try to work with just the text, like what is actually in the text? Because whenever I get into like extra textual stuff, like, you know, what Joss Whedon thought or whatever, I'm full on in death of the author camp, you know, like whatever's (laughs) in the text is what I'm going to read. And I think that we get a lot of contradictory things within the text regarding, you know, the responsibility, because when you're possessed by anything else. Anything else possesses anybody in the Buffy verse, they get a free pass. Like Xander possessed by hyenas, it's fine. Yeah. He sexually assaults Buffy, right? We're good with it, you know. Um, they get a pass on everything they do. So, how much control at any one moment? I mean, Xander at the end of the pack remembers everything that happened. Like, so he was present for it. Sure, you know? and Xander may- has a couple of lines in the pack that mm-hmm. indicate that possessed Xander is being driven 
in part by Xander's personality and his yeah. memories. Going after Buffy is one yeah. of them, but he also acknowledges that he knows about Willow's crush in that episode yep. until Willow stops kidding herself that I could be with anyone but you. Right. Mm-hmm. Which to me also raises questions about him flirting with her in When She Was Bad. Yes. No, but that's that's, a di- that might be a different conversation. That's a whole other conversation. Much. I'm still yeah. pissed off about that because they yeah. just have this moment where they almost kiss and then pretend like they didn't almost kiss. I mean, come on, TV show. So um, I get a little bit, I get a little bit worked up about that. Um, and then when they finally do have them kiss, it's way too late and it's all ruined. Whatever. Um, so yeah, I, I have strong feelings. But anyway, back to this. So like, clearly, clearly, the show is saying that that who you are, you know, who he is with a soul. You know, Angel with a soul is responsible for what Angelus does, that there there is no difference, even though a vampire really is being possessed by a demon. It's not just the loss of the soul. You know, we, we put everything on the soul. Like, the soul is the thing that makes you good. But, you know, we clearly have humans doing bad shit all the time. I mean, even at this point, before we even get to the trio from season six, we have Ethan Rain. You know, who's out yeah. there causing all manner of trouble. Um, we have bad people doing bad things who are just mundane humans being awful all the time. So they have souls. Um, so what that comes down to is is the soul is clearly not the arbiter of goodness, but rather the thing that gives us a choice. Is that sure. it? That without it, we don't choose? Because, of course, once again, choosing is everything, right? So if you look at Angel... Um, at no point does he choose to be Angelus. At no point does he actively choose and say, yeah, with full knowledge of the monster that I'll be, let's do it. You know, he gets bitten by Darla. You know, that is a violation. Um, he is killed. He is brought back. He is Angelus. He is a huge monster. And then he comes back and he's got his, he's, he gets cursed. He's got his soul and he can't live with it. And we see him for a while trying to be Angelus, even with the soul. So given a choice, he wants the simpler life. He just can't do it, you know? So mm-hmm. by the time we get to our angel, you know, in the now of, of the Buffy verse, um, whether or not other people hold him responsible, isn't really what it's about. It's about the fact that he holds himself responsible. You know, he feels responsible for everything that he did as Angelus. And part of it is, too, that, and we get this a couple of times. We get it, I think, in in an episode in Angel, and we get it here. You know, it's not the demon in me that needs killing. It's the man. I want to take, you know, my comfort in you. I want these things. I want to be simple. When I was just evil, it was simple. You know, Um, that there's something in that that he misses even as Angel, that Angel still craves some of what Angelus was. And if you look back to who Liam was, you know, before he was turned, um, drunken whoring layabout, right? You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, like no good fighting with his father, causing all manner of trouble, breaking his mama's heart, you know, that kind of thing. Um, So I think that for Angel, it's. Like, everybody else holding him responsible is one thing. Like, that really isn't his problem. Um, I don't think that he cares whether anybody else holds him responsible. He holds himself responsible because part of him liked it. Because he remembers liking it. I think part of him, even now, sort of wants it back. Misses it. Is nostalgic for it. And I think that that is what haunts him. And I get that from very, very thin textual evidence once or twice throughout the run of the season, you know, where he says stuff like that, both series, you know. Um, So I think that essentially when it comes right down to it, if we're talking about guilt and redemption, 
you know, um, that the desire for guilt, the desire for redemption, the desire to make amends comes from within. And here we have like, you know, Xander, Willow, Giles, all, you know, people that that Angelus hurt. Um, Giles being, you know, one of the, the ones he hurt the most, all stepping in to help Angel because they separate Angelus from Angel. You know, he's dangerous mm -hmm. because if he has a moment of perfect happiness, you know, we're all going to be dead again. You know, we're all going to be in danger again. Um, but but they are actually able in this episode without him asking them to help. And uh, yeah, they're doing it for Buffy. But, you know, they're also that is an act of forgiveness for him. But he doesn't feel that because he can't forgive himself. And that's my that's my read on it, specifically with regard to Angel. It's a it's an expression that he's worth uh, working for, uh, worth mm -hmm. saving. Yeah. Am yeah, I a righteous certainly. man? Am I a man worth saving? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the, I think the show further complicates things in two, well, primarily through Orpheus. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that episode is the seat of the soul or seat of identity versus is the soul, the seat of identity versus is the soul, the mm -hmm. conscience. Yeah. Uh, monkey in the wrench so yeah. to speak um but without that episode i think it's very clear that especially when you consider spike mm -hmm. and season seven spike that it is conscience yeah and and free will though the funny thing is the way that i eventually grokked to angel's feelings about himself and if we the audience argue for well he didn't have a soul so why not mm -hmm. was through a different piece of fiction um I'm a big MCU fan, and there's uh -huh. a scene in Captain America Civil War mm -hmm. where Cap and Bucky are flying to the Antarctic at the end of it, mm -hmm. and Buffy says to Cap, uh, Buffy, <laughs> <laughs> Bucky says to Cap, I don't know if I'm worth all this, Steve, yeah. uh, and he was the comic book Manchurian candidate, and mm -hmm. Cap says, all those things you did all those years ago, you didn't have a choice. And Bucky says, I know, but I did them. Yeah. And that is what unlocked to me Angel's quest is mm -hmm. Bucky and Angel can't separate themselves from the events. Those mm -hmm. memories are not Angelus's. Those are Angelus and, and Angel's. Mm -hmm. um, and so for him, and and it's they make it clear that the 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 vampire is driven by the um, desires of its human host. Mm -hmm. um, Xander is... Uh, the hyena Xander is driven by Xander's desires. Right. Um, uh, Angel wants to take comfort, comfort in Buffy. But Angelus, in season two, when he first shows up, is driven to torment Buffy. Mm -hmm. um, she... I can't remember the exact phrasing of the line, but uh, she sa he says, she loved me, and that's not something you just forgive. Yes. Some, mm -hmm. Something to that effect. Yeah, mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, Angel's desires and Angel's perspective of the world is partially driving the vampire at all times. Mm -hmm. So that was eventually how I came around to redemption versus atonement and, and all of that. Yeah, no, I think it's, it's really great. And in this episode, um, it's so interesting. I, I think my favorite kind of representation of this sort of, you know, sense of forgiveness comes when he goes to Giles, right? Because mm -hmm. Giles is the guy who knows and, and, and Angel knows something's happening. 
And he goes to Giles, and I love this whole bit from the second Giles opens the door until Angel runs out. It is so fantastic. It is um, a breath-holding scene. Oh, I, my God. I, I think you hold your breath from start to finish. And just when you start to relax, uh, Jenny shows up. Jenny shows up. And it is so heartbreaking. In, in the outfit... That Angel killed her in. I mean, let's not forget all these people are wearing what they wore when Angel killed them, you know? Yeah, Giles is wearing the shirt that uh, Angel tortured him in. Oh, see, I didn't realize he was wearing the same shirt. Yeah. Oh, my God. No, it's it's so... But, like, Giles opens the door. There's Angel. And Giles has this look on his face, of course, you know? And then Angel needs help. And Giles not just says, okay, you stay on that side, but invites him in. I mean, he's got the crossbow. You know, he's, he's, he's ready to kill him, you know? I'm aware of that. But invites him in. And that, oh God, that feels to me like such a powerful moment of grace to, to see Angel suffering after what Angel did to him. You know, not killing Jenny is part of it and torturing him is the other part. I mean, it's just, it's terrible. The experience and the trauma that that Angelus put him through. And yet, when Angel needs help, he invites him in. And while everybody helping at the library, I can see that being about Buffy, this isn't even about Angel. This is about Giles and who Giles is. And God, it's beautiful. It's a very, I mean, getting back to the philosophy, it's a very mm-hmm. distinct choice mm-hmm. that 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 runs contrary to maybe his impulses for self-preservation his impu- his selfish impulses his hatred of the person who killed the woman he loves yeah. he makes a a choice contrary to his own self-interest um in the name of good in the name of you know meaning and a better uh, a better world yeah uh, so it's a it's it's a very powerful example of what Angel is not doing, I suppose, at the end of the story, mm-hmm. that that Buffy is urging him to do. You know, Buffy's role model, Buffy's father figure, mm-hmm. invites him in in this, uh, you know, terrifying little scene. And yeah, it's wonderful. Yeah, no, it's so incredibly great. And I love, too, that we have Angel coming to him and he's a why. I need to know why I'm back. Why was I brought back? You know, yeah. because that's always, of course, the most important thing. For Angel, you know, and then Giles has this beautiful line to be blunt. The last time you became complacent about your existence, it turned out rather badly. In the, yeah. The all time competition for best understatements. Ever. <laughs> um, but like this scene right here is the whole reason why I have such a crazy crush on Giles. <laughs> Giles is like wonderful. And every time he's so strong, he's so together, but he's also you know, he has his own darkness, mm-hmm. you know, and we see that we're going to see that come out more and more and more, you know, as we move forward in the seasons. And of course, my like one of my favorite Giles is scruffy sweater, you know, unemployed Giles from season four. That's... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, he doesn't say, hang on while I go and get a crossbow to make sure that you yeah. can't do anything to me. He waits to make a point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that speaks to a power that speaks to the ripper i think Mm -hmm. that's a highlight as you said that's a highlight of of the darker aspect of giles i'm aware of that he says walking out with a crossbow is just (laughs) wonderful (laughs) and then he says and the funny keeps on coming when angel says i need your help it's just so great it is honestly one of the best you know uh best scenes ever and this is the thing about joss whedon like joss whedon 
you know, a lot of people have strong feelings about Joss Whedon for a lot of reasons. <laughs> he makes people feel a lot of ways, you know. Um, and I understand a lot of that, and I have complicated feelings about Whedon. But when Whedon wants to, like, nail everything, like, he can, he can basically cook up you know, conflict in a spoon and just inject it right in, you know, yeah. in, in such, with such incredible, like, deftness and efficiency. And this is one of those examples, like, everything that happened between Giles and Angel, um, you know, we know, but, like, even if you've never seen the show before, if you watch this, you can get enough, you know, to understand the history there. Um, it's so incredibly, like, well done. And this is the time, like, it's when Joss Whedon does stuff like this that I'm just like, oh, my God. I mean, yeah, it's amazing. The scene feels very powerful, but perfectly effortless. Mm -hmm. That's always something that I'm surprised by uh, in Whedon's writing is uh, it's so tight, but everything feels exactly where it should be. The beats mm -hmm. in that scene are so perfect. The reveal of Jenny mm -hmm. um, and then the multiple layers that it's kind of working on. What with all the same clothing, just the very idea that Giles can't see the woman he loves anymore, yeah. oh, but God. Angel mm -hmm. can. Mm -hmm. um, is that, that, the the physics of that scene mm -hmm. show the pain of what has happened that yeah. that that Jenny was taken from Giles by Angel and so um it's so good it's so yeah. good yeah and we have to have this like the, this episode has to happen because after everything that happened with Angelus you know in season 2 um we have to directly look at it and process it you know, and, and we do it through this episode, which is so beautifully done. And there was one thing that I saw in your video that you had pointed out that I was completely blown away by, but the guy in the modern suit. Yes. The, uh, that, that was a chilling detail that it, there's so many times I've, I've watched the show now a dozen times, mm -hmm. but there's, there is watching the show and then there is writing an essay about it. And in yeah. dissecting the episode, layers of it, uh, get, uh, I see layers of it that I didn't before. And one of them is that guy is wearing modern clothing. One of the, the mm -hmm. ghost in the suit torturing uh, Angel is wearing uh, contemporary clothing that existed after Angelus was uh, cursed by the Romani. Mm -hmm. And so um, that guy and his children were murdered by Angel after innocence, after yeah. surprise and innocence. And that is a, that is a chilling uh, terrible thought to me. All of the things that Angelus was doing when he wasn't on camera. Yeah, no, it's it's really terrible. And I hadn't ever thought about it because all of the other deaths were like, you know, we'd seen Jenny. You know, we'd seen what he'd done to Jenny. Um, and we knew that back in the day, you know, when he was romping around Europe, you know, that was one. So there's the, the maid and then there's the guy from the alley. And then when you see this guy and he's talking about how artfully his children were laid in their beds you know and he's telling this it is so incredibly chilling and i had never really thought that this was angelus 2.0 this was angel when we knew him he had yeah. done this you know um and that's a big deal although uh watching the episode for this discussion i it's kind of like giggling in church uh <laughs> there's a line right after that where she says that's what makes you different from other beasts mm -hmm. they kill to feed you take more kinds of pleasure in it I was like, well, we've put GoPros on house cats now, so we know that's not the case. 
God. You know. They're little ki- psychopaths. They are they kitties kill for entertainment. So okay. <laughs> and jealous and cute little house cats. All right, and on that note, we are going to take a moment to hear from our sponsor. This episode of Still Pretty is brought to you by Atonement, Forgiveness, Redemption, and Amends. Look, we all screw up from time to time. Sometimes it's not that big a deal. You forget a friend's birthday, or you cancel on plans at the last minute because you'd rather be home with a pint of Ben and Jerry's and Game of Thrones, or you get a detail wrong on a Buffy podcast and no one ever lets you forget it. Or maybe you've done something truly horrible. Maybe you were cruel. Maybe you lied about something that mattered. Maybe you said something you can't ever, ever take back. Maybe you hurt someone you love. Maybe it's even worse than all that. Maybe you can't imagine ever being able to make up for it all. So why even try? Maybe you think you're just broken and wrong and beyond redemption. So why bother? Because without striving for redemption, you can't move forward. You are locked forever in the same space because no matter where you go or what you do or how many times you try to start over, you can't. Not without facing your ghosts and demons first. Go to the people you've hurt and use the code I'm sorry, and then use it again and again until you can behave, I'm sorry. We can't guarantee forgiveness. That's up to the injured parties involved. But we can tell you that the only shot in hell you have at getting past the ghosts that haunt you is through the door they stand in front of. The only way out is through. And this is the part where we ask you to go to patreon.com slash chipperish and throw us a few bucks. But you know what? Today's about you. Do better and feel better. But most of all, never give up hope. Unless it's Scott Hope. Kick that dude to the curb immediately. Right. So, Ian, um, we've got a little bit of Buffy and Faith, of course, which is one of our favorite things to talk about because Buffy and Faith and how much incredible fun they are. Um, I I love how, you know, Buffy feels bad about Faith. She clearly misses her. Um, And it was at this point I realized we haven't seen Faith since Revelation, since that ending at the end of Revelation. She's just been out there on her own, you know, dealing with the aftermath of that betrayal and humiliation with Gwendolyn Post. Um, and just shutting herself off from friends and community. And then recently we talked about The Wish, um, where we see the Alterna Buffy, like who Buffy would have been <laughs> if she didn't have friends and community. That what what being the Slayer does to you, you know, um, without family and friends to kind of keep you connected to your humanity, you can really quickly lose it, you know. And so thinking about Faith being out there on her own this whole time, and she's a she's like 17 yeah you know living in a trashy motel i mean with christmas lights so you know i mean at least there's still that right spotting spotting (laughs) um but it's really nice like when faith shows up 
and says, yeah, I had that big party to go to, but I'm, you know, I'll hang out here with you guys. And then, and then Buffy leaves her to, you know, keep an eye on Joyce, which I think is a really nice show of trust and family and everything. It's just, it's really kind of sweet way of bringing Faith back in. So I was curious, like how you felt about Faith in this episode. Well, my audience member, like every perspective on the Buffyverse exists. That's something I've learned in doing this is, Mm -hmm. uh, you you know I learned that in season one uh, by the fact that there are people who love season one and I drive yes. that I couldn't fathom that at the time and there are people <laughs> who make an argument for go fish and she uh, oh god yeah um, and and you know my mm-hmm. my learned approach I guess is uh, well they're they're the ones better off. Uh, if they can, if they can get something out of this episode that I can't, then more power. Well, see, but I any- always get shit for defending Reptile Boy, but Reptile Boy has some. I love stuff. Reptile Boy. Okay, thank you, thank I love you very Reptile much. Boy. Um, People yeah. make fun of me for that, but I think Reptile Boy actually has some legit chops going on. Every episode of the show has mm-hmm. scenes that make watching the episode worthwhile. Even Go yes. Fish, you've mm-hmm. got Xander in a banana hammock and. <laughs> And you've got Cordy arguing for how she and Fish Xander can make the the relationship work. I mean, <laughs> no matter what, there's always something. There's always it. something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, where the wild things are has uh, behind blue eyes, Giles. Yes. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. There's speaking of stupid, sexy, smoldering Giles. Um, <laughs> I'm here for it. I don't care. Yeah, I yeah. have no shame. You could hammer a <laughs> nail into a board with that chin. Ah. <laughs> So when I see Faith in this episode, something that was, has been brought up uh, to me by my audience and that I can't really unsee anymore is there's a mm-hmm. question as to whether, in what way the Scoobies drove Faith away. So mm-hmm. Buffy treated Faith as a threat um, early on yeah, and then sort of tried, made abortive attempts to um ingratiate herself to her and mm-hmm. um in this episode her showing up at the at faith's place and faith calls yeah your mom told you to come here didn't didn't yeah. she yeah very self-evidently uh sarah michelle geller is playing that scene like her mom made her invite mm-hmm. her to her birthday party mm-hmm. um that was me but the, the in this case it was uh christmas right. so um I watching this episode, I think about well, why why is she in the hotel? Mm-hmm. Why not Dawn's bedroom? You know, right. like there are. Uh, why didn't Joyce think of that? The first that thing is a the, big ass house. You're going to tell me there's two little there's bedrooms in there? Tons of space, and Joyce even says uh, talks about the rundown, the sad rundown motel mm-hmm. in this episode. Yeah, the first thing the mayor does when. Uh, Faith joins her his team is mm-hmm. put her in a nice place. Yeah. With a PlayStation mm-hmm. and, and a bed and all of that. The first thing he does is support her and try and take care of her. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think of during these kinds of Faith episodes is yeah. the... It doesn't make them responsible for her choices, but certainly mm-hmm. they could have tried harder. Well, yeah, it doesn't make any sense to me that here is this 17-year-old kid... You know, no parents, no watcher of her own, you know, kind of like as from the perspective of the mom, from the perspective of Joyce, like you wouldn't be inviting her over for dinner. You'd be inviting her in to stay, you know, like she's a slayer. Like she needs to be somebody needs to take care of. Don't even get me started on the fucking watchers council. 
It, well, yeah, that's a, that's a long conversation. That but is it, a it, whole other discussion. Yeah, it feels like a a a, a breakdown of empathy on multiple yeah. fronts, including yeah. Giles. You know mm-hmm. that uh, yeah. he has a couch. You know, yeah. he's the wa- he's her watcher for mm-hmm. now. Yeah. Why? You know, he, mm-hmm. we see him interact with her so little, and that yeah. makes the mayor's interactions with her incredibly powerful. I th- I mean, I've suggested that. The mayor and Faith are the dark mirror of Giles and Buffy. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Because you've got that whole father relationship. Mm -hmm. And that's why their relationship is um, codependent and evil, but so (laughs) endearing. I know. Uh, When the mayor leans on the box of Gavrock and listens to her story about jumping off the cliff and and Harry Groner says, not you, though, with such (laughs) love and and connection. Mm -hmm. Um, So... Frustration. Uh, yeah. Long story, slightly less long. Frustration <laughs> is what I feel uh, with a lot of faith sequences early on. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, but I do, I do really appreciate the Christmas lights. Um, yes. I love that she is decorating her environment because environment is very important, and Faith obviously realizes that. <laughs> Um, so another thing we've got here, you know, if we're talking about amends, we've got the Willow and Oz reunion, which is so fantastic. And I just have to play Oz's speech because he's like the best ever. Oz. I'm ready. Okay. Well, don't take this the wrong way. But I'm not. Are you scared? Because I thought you had... No, I I have. But this is different. I mean, you look great. And and you got the berry working for you. And and it's all good. But when it happens, I want it to be because we both needed to for the same reason. You don't have to prove anything to me. I just wanted you to know. I know. I get the message. And I have to say, like, Oz has this incredible ability to to say no. (laughs) Yeah. To, like, turn someone down and do it in such a way that you actually feel even more secure in the relationship his, his after rejection, being rejected. Yeah, his rejection is empowering. It really is. He's so amazing. Like, I got to say, and there's nothing in the world sexier than a man who has his shit together. And even as I say it, I realize that I've got huge things for, like, both Dark Wesley and Spike. So, you know, there's different shades of sex. But I got to say, like, Oz is so incredible and so good and always has the right thing to say. And he's almost, I don't know. Is he too perfect? So, so Oz or Dark Wesley? So a man who has his shit together or a man who has his shit completely broken and on the floor. Got it. I'm taking notes. He has his shit in the closet with a bucket. Like that's... <laughs> Dark oh, Wesley's got some issues. The bucket. I forgot about the bucket. Oh my God. I'll never forget about the bucket. Yeah. Yeah. That's... that's a good... Yeah. Uh yeah, so the 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 scene, the other scene was in surprise when or no, it's in innocence when uh-huh. uh Willow asks if he wants to make out and he says no. Yeah. And says, uh don't worry. It's okay. I can wait. 
And then, right. the, uh, and then this scene where it's just like, we should all be so lucky as to be rejected by Oz. <laughs> How does he do it? He's just, and I think it's because it's like, it's always about, it's not that he doesn't want Willow. It's that he wants Willow at the right time in the right moment without having to like prove anything. And in in the first instance, she was, you know, proving something to Xander that it was about Xander, you know? And in this, it's about proving that she is his and just his. But I mean, when she says, I'm ready, we can, we can do that thing, you know, like, (laughs) If you can't say the thing, you're probably not ready to do the thing. Probably not ready to do the thing. And instead of pointing that out, which I think is the the reasonable thing to think at that moment, he's like, no, he's, you know, he's just, he just gives her this whole thing. Like, it's it's so beautiful. It's so wonderful. And, um, And Oz, as perfect as he is, I usually don't like perfect characters because often it's a like performative capital G good. You know, where it's like, I am the white hat and this is identity, you know. But with Oz, everything feels so genuine. Like, he just understands things on a deeper level. And I just, I don't know. Like, I want to go to the Oz school of how to handle your relationships. Like, he's so good at it. <laughs> yeah. So um, we, we were thinking uh, Ozzy Sue. Uh, I don't. <laughs> right. I don't know if the term fits, but is he? Is, is it a problem, especially right. on a show, mm-hmm. sort of defined by characters who are always making mistakes and learning from them? Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's a problem. I think that what I like about Oz is we don't have any other characters that have their shit together as well. I mean, even Giles, like Giles has got more grunge on him than Oz does, you know? Um, And I think that Oz being very specifically who he is and playing the role that he plays, um, you know, it's, it's okay. I think that if he were a protagonist, we wouldn't get enough kind of, uh, you know, um, conflict mojo coming from him you know, sure. to be able to, like, run a show on it. Um, but as a background character, as a side character, as Willow's boyfriend, you know, like, I think, I, I, for me, it works. What do you think? Well, I, I I think I would date Oz if he were a real person in, in the real world, <laughs> so I don't really now feel qualified to answer that question. <laughs> uh, yeah, Oz makes me ask uncomfortable questions of myself on a regular basis. <laughs> He's I, I I I think it gets back to the uh, in these sorts of discussions. It seems to me like the the um, the ter- that terms themselves get demonized, trope, cliche, Mary Sue, so on and so yeah. forth, and that's just not that's just wrong. You know the mm-hmm. the, the, the using those things. You know, Gunn is very much a, either a stereotype or a cliche when he starts on Angel, mm-hmm. yeah. um, but it's about where they go, the journey mm-hmm. of the character, what happens. Or uh, what they provide to the story. Is that yeah. meaningful and valuable? And I think Oz, as a foil for Willow, mm-hmm. you know, uh, neurotic bag of anxieties, Willow is yes. perfect. And like you said, um, it works because he's not a main character. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, uh, putting him in the driver's seat, you'd have to figure out, uh, he'd be a little too much of a paragon. You'd have to yeah, figure you'd out. have to traumatize them a little bit, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Which we do a little bit in season four. So I mean, by the end of season four, by the end of his run, anyway, in season four, he's he's got a little more. You know, he's taken on a little more water. But right now, he's just the most perfect thing ever. Um, which 
which conflicts nicely with Xander. Well, hang on, hang on one sec. I wanted to bring I wanted to bring something up about Oz that oh. I, I was curious how you felt about this. Okay, go ahead. So uh, you know, Oz in the realm of perfect, uh, in the realm of perfection, I, I mentioned he might be a paragon. Yeah. Uh, the the paragon that springs immediately to mind is Captain America. Uh-huh. And the show has an actual attempted Captain America. Oh God. In Riley. <laughs> oh God. Right now. I have a preference there. Uh, one of those yeah. things is obviously considerably more interesting than the other one. Yes. But there are interesting parallels between the two of them. Um, oh, inclu- God. Including where their stories end up. Uh, uh-huh. the, the, the parallels to me of Oz cheating on Willow uh, mm-hmm. in, a, in a sort of the dark world drove him to do it kind of way. And yeah. Uh, Riley going out and getting himself bitten, which to me is the most interesting that Riley is on the show. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The, <laughs> the height of Riley interesting. <laughs> yeah, the writers themselves have said they didn't know how to write that character in season four. Once they yeah. started um, throwing baggage at him, it's funny that mm-hmm. the writers need characters with baggage. Yes. Um, things got quite a bit more interesting. But I was wondering what you thought of those. One of those was an impulsive thing they had to do in order to get Seth Green off the show. Mm-hmm. And uh, the other one was Riley. Um, I'm curious about those. Does the, does that parallel elicit anything to you? Uh, thoughts on that? Um, I think that Oz, the whole Oz everything is done better than the Riley anything. Um, and... <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> so, I mean, I think like Oz sleeping with Veruca, you know, at that point in, in the season, I always had a little bit of a, well, this is a sudden turn, sure. you know, kind of thing. But the fact that she is also a werewolf, like to have somebody show up in your life all of a sudden who can understand you in a way that nobody else can really understand you, who can like, you know, it's a whole thing about being seen, right? Right. You know, I mean, this is a big thing now. Everybody's like, you know, I, I feel seen. I want to feel seen. And it's so important to be seen. And so something that Veruca can understand that Willow can't and that Oz keeps away from Willow, you know, as much as he can. Um, right. You know, does is that, that beast does, part of him? Does that episode not suffer from uh, the you you said um, uh, you gave a term for conflict that could be solved by a conversation? Oh, yes. The false conflict. The false conflict. Yeah. All mm-hmm. of friends, as an example. Yes. Uh, yes. If it does that story not suffer from that if he had just had a conversation with her about Veruca. Mm-hmm. yeah oh yeah no absolutely like there's things in that in that story like that happens first of all it all happens really really quick and so, and i understand they had to quickly like you know move seth green off the show and it happens right yeah absolutely. um so i think that the con the concept of it um is better than the execution of it um, because the fact is, is that like what Willow and Oz have is real conflict. Once you get past that conversation though, like is that, is the fact that he is a werewolf and that is becoming a bigger part of his identity and a bigger part of like, he is always like, put the werewolf aside, the werewolf's three days, you know, I, for three nights a month, I gotta like, you know, hang out and chill, but he can never really indulge that part of himself. Whereas it's a part. And then of course they have him go and completely deny that part of himself, which I think you, you know, uh, story-wise you're looking more for an integration as opposed to the complete denial of it, that his ability to pretend that he isn't this thing is what will bring him back to Willow. And at that point, Willow is completely changed. So yes, this is fully spoiled. I'm just telling you, <laughs> I, I warned you guys at the beginning. Um, so, I mean that, and when you compare it to 
Riley, like, first of all, yes, when Riley, uh, Riley's issue with not being stronger and better and, you know, everything -er than Buffy um, comes from his essential insecurity, not just as a man, but as a human being. Like, he can't handle her being stronger and more powerful than him. I love Um, that he got upset over her number. They very specifically have the conversation. How uh, the number... Uh, and he got intimidated by the, uh, the, her number of kills, but the parallel that that's supposed to be is pretty obvious. Oh yeah, absolutely. And it's, he's just, he's the worst. He's the worst all the way through, like from the beginning. (laughs) He is, I have this, this, um, this like, you know, like archetype that I've built called the, the floppy hair douchebag and whether or not they actually have floppy hair, they are in their soul. Like is Scott Hope at his soul floppy hair douchebag. It's like this guy comes in so charming. You know, like, but this very superficial performative charm, the let's go see Buster Keaton charm, like that kind of (laughs) bullshit, right? You know, and so you've got that in Scott Hope, you've got that in Parker, you've got that in Riley, you've got that Gilmore Girls is really so into the floppy haired douchebag. Not a one except for Luke is not a floppy haired douchebag. And then he becomes one as soon as he starts dating a Gilmore girl. It's a whole problem there. Any man dates a Gilmore girl, instantly douche. Instant douche if he wasn't before. But um, that's a whole other discussion on another show. But um, but so anyway, Riley is the classic floppy haired douchebag. Like he comes in. He's so charming. She drops. They have the meet cute. She drops the books on his head, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And it's <sighs> just truly, truly terrible, the whole thing. Um, and he's also got this super soldier thing going on. Um, and he's he's from Iowa, which is, you know, apparently shorthand. It's like your Metro card pass to like goodness you know um if you're from iowa or the midwest or whatever so it's all of these things where he becomes this assemblage of you know of quirks and personality but rather than an actual character and mm-hmm. if you could put riley and oz next to each other and the idea that these were created by the same group of people it's it's really almost impossible to fathom how Riley happened you know? down to the romantic lines. I mean, uh, it's okay. I can wait versus you really have a lot to learn about women, Riley. It's okay. Oh, You're going to teach me oh, really God. like she doesn't have enough to do. She's the slayer, man. It's not her job to teach you about women. Why don't you go back to the library, <laughs> Riley, and read a book? Like, do a thing, you know? But uh, I mean, and that's supposed to be romantic. Like, it this is. Whole thing. Oh, God, it's that's so always, terrible. That's always one of the, the questions is like intent versus execution. His ma- yes. masculine insecurity, was that intended in season four? It seems yeah. deliberate in season five. But the way they mishandle so many of the romantic lines and... Uh, it's, it's confusing so to bad. me in four. Yeah. It's Buffy doing well. I think what happened is that they wrote the douchebag in four. And then in season five, they're like, well, we have this douchebag appendage <laughs> that we got to do something with. She needs so to let's actually, it. Right. Let's actually textually call out the douchebaggery that he is so insecure because Buffy is stronger than him, you know? Yeah. And the thing is that, like, had Riley been an Oz, right? Because Oz. Ain't got nothing to be insecure about. 
No. <laughs> he's he's confident. He knows that he's a good person. He doesn't feel like anybody else is better than him. He's not made insecure by any somebody else winning does not make him a loser. Like he's got it together, you know. And Riley his his inability to um to be around like a woman who is stronger than him. And it's because she's a woman. So there's also all that sexist internalized misogyny, all that bullshit yeah. going on there. I mean, there's so many layers. He is a seven layer dip of just bad <laughs> and every layer just gets worse like the top looks okay you know but then you get in it's like it's not good like that's what he is um so like basically they they did something with it in season five that at least made his damage textual and not like not well mostly not okay except for xander's stupid speech yeah the speeches whatever which brings us i mean -hmm. that's an interesting point the the thing that i came up with when i was writing about the end of season four is how much Mm -hmm. more interesting that season would have been if you replaced uh riley with xander yeah Uh, uh xander had the military background xander Mm -hmm. uh which allowed him to fast track his way through the military program over summer break. We've never seen uh, a soldier (laughs) who knows as much as you do. And Xander gets stationed in Sunnydale uh, for this secret program called The Initiative. But everything you've just said about masculine insecurity and all of that was already created in Xander. The Zeppo, Xander is sitting at the table with Oz having a conversation about his thing. Uh And... So all of those themes would have fit so much more naturally and and smoothly into um, season four had they been put through a character that we found more interesting. That we actually care about. Yeah, that we actually care about. Yeah, yeah. And so and it's also that forced romance, too. You know, this right. like it, it basically I'm hot, you're hot, let's be hot together, which is the least interesting kind of romance. Like in order to build a romance, you have to have people who have stuff in common, who work well together. And I mean, we see them at the end of Hush, you know, they work well together getting rid of the gentleman. So, I mean, well, actually, no, they don't because he's sitting there no, and she's dissonant. like, break the thing and he breaks the wrong thing. Right. Their fighting is dissonant in that scene. Yeah, uh, no, it really is. So they don't even work well together. And I mean, that's how you build... You build a good romance, not by, you know, we have two hot people and they look good together, but that you show that two people, who they are at their core is essentially compatible and that they are good together. And like, that's how you build a romance. And so many people don't understand how to build romance, that romance is not about the big hyperbolic, you know, love gestures and whatever, like that stuff can be fun, but you've got to have at the core of it, a love story that these are two people that are so good together that they just kind of click, you know? And when you tell that story when people really work well together that's when you see a great romance happening and for me like I also have this thing where I love a love story between and I I, very specifically a woman and her work but anybody in their work but for me like a love story between a woman and her work you know for me like his girl Friday is not about Hildy and Walter for me it's about Hildy and journalism like that's what that romance is you know Um, so I love that kind of love story so for me personally like the the great the easy path to that is have two people who are working together who work really well together and then you kind of build something from there Um, but here we just have these two people and they could have worked well together but they they didn't you know, and they're still like they're just together because they're both pretty. Yeah, you know? I, w- I was struck by the uh, ugly Oz v- version of Riley. Just the parallel mm-hmm. with the the Paragon aspect and and yeah. the way in which they're both kind of written off the show. But mm-hmm. yeah, for sure, uh, Oz and Willow are 
written in the stars in more of a way than uh, Riley and Buffy, which felt forced and yes. painful from the beginning. It was. It was like we have to have. It's you know. It's it's choosing the person who's there, as opposed to like, yeah. Forrest waiting, and Riley for somebody good. Forrest yeah. and Riley have more chemistry than Buffy and Riley do. Oh yeah. If Forrest and Riley had just run off together in the beginning, <laughs> everybody would have been happier. Absolutely. Get rid of both of them. Um, all right. So we've covered all that. You were talking a little bit about Xander. So that kind of like brings me back to Xander in Amends. Um, so one of the things that I, I kind of like here is we have sort of a direct textual acknowledgement of Xander's family situation, which is something that we've heard like jokes about. You know, we've had like little bits of, you know, his uncle Rory, you know, yeah. booze and fur flying like, you know, after 5 p.m. Booze horse and fur flying after 5 p.m. Right. Uh, the taxi dermist um so we have a lot of this stuff from from xander where we've gotten a hint about his family but here's this moment of of like real vulnerability when cordelia says you know you sleep outside to avoid your family's drunken christmas brawls you know and she only says that in front of willow and buffy but xander is like yeah and i was really hoping that you would betray that confidence so that little interaction does so much. I mean, first of all, it shows that, you know, we're actually textually and openly acknowledging that Xander's family life is is seriously bad. Um, also that he's so close with Buffy and Willow, but apparently was embarrassed that Cordelia would mention it in front of them. So doesn't talk to them about it. I mean, Willow, you would think that he would absolutely talk to Willow about it. Right. So do you think Willow knows? I mean, Willow's got to know. Well, the... Um... One of the lines that she tells, says to Xander earlier on is, uh, my mom's, if Xander says, my mom's making the legendary order the, to the Chinese place. Yes. And she <laughs> says, do your parents even have a stove? <laughs> and so, yeah, the the details of Xander's home life being meted out so slowly until you get to mm -hmm. Restless um, mm -hmm. are really fascinating. I love that. And, and like you said, this is the very first uh, open acknowledgement of it, and I do feel like Willow would know. I yeah. th I I think that Xander would be more prone to acknowledge it to her through his humor than right. than as a moment of vulnerability. I mean, um, my thought was Xander's sort of tortured home life kind of explains his gallows humor. Yeah. Um. Mm -hmm. uh, it explains why he's the 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 joker of the group mm -hmm. um and it's to sort of hide this painful uh background at home but in a love relationship in an intimate um uh relationship as he had with cordy mm -hmm. that moment could be given without being dressed up with his kind of yeah. usual veneer of humor which is why that scene is so devastating well, yeah, because like you don't really think about Xander and Cordelia as having that kind of like deep emotional closeness, you know, right. because you don't really see that they're always joking around, always lighthearted, you know, um, and for for him to have shared that with her, that like emotionally vulnerable with her that he wasn't even with Buffy and Willow. That's a big deal. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And uh makes that cut that she does that much more you know vile mm -hmm. i guess for yeah. lack of a better term um as yeah. as buffy says uh she certainly returned to form mm -hmm. um i mean it's a tough thing given what uh 
he did to her. Um, uh, Certainly Cordy's relationship, Cordy's half of the relationship with him has been shown to be rare moments of vulnerability for her wearing the heart and standing up to harmony and all Mm -hmm. of that. And so, you know, there's just ugly on both sides of that breakup. Yeah, no, it's just, it's really, really sad. Um, But then we get this moment. And I mean, one of the things like empathy is the antidote to shame, right? You know, I mean, that's something that that a lot of people talk about. Um, Brene Brown does a whole run on shame, which is fantastic. So I I highly recommend anybody who's interested in that, go go, uh, look to Brene Brown's work. Um, But empathy is an antidote to shame. Here, Xander is, you know, it's Christmas time. Clearly, that is a bad time for him, for his family. He's just had this acknowledged openly, not just acknowledged openly in front of people, but, but as a cut from somebody that he trusted. So all of that has got to be sending Xander into a shame spiral. And the thing that I love about this is that he responds to that, not by receiving empathy, but by giving it. Like mm-hmm. when he walks in, when Buffy needs help, help, like helping out Angel, he just steps in and says, what can I do? You know, and just completely steps up, is not snarky about it. You know, he just steps in and says, I'm going to I'm going to help you out, uh, you know, for the Hanukkah spirit. Right. Um, and ordinarily, I would find that to be a bit of a sharp turn for him, you know, uh, but given like that huge vulnerability that he'd been hit with earlier, I see that shame or that empathy coming in as his way of fighting that shame in himself. And it's really kind of nice. It is. It, it's also the end. Of, I believe it's the end of the. Xander jealous over Angel. Uh, God, we can't put a nail in that coffin. Right. I mean, from season one onwards. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't mm-hmm. like you. At the end of the day, I think you're just a vampire. And I guess yeah. a guy's got to make time, uh, be undead to make time with you. Over yeah. and over and over again. This episode uh, kind of represents the punctuation mark on that aspect of his character. Because I mm-hmm. don't think it comes up again. Again. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, No, I don't think it does. Uh, I think we're finally done with that, which is good because that went on about, I don't know, three seasons too long. Yeah, it was exhausting. Uh, That that needed to die in the first season. Um, So uh, one of the other things that I want to talk to you about is actually this idea of the first evil. Um, Because I, I actually really love this idea of the first evil. Um, And so the problem with the first evil and the problem with most like truly evil things is that the more we see of them, the more that is revealed of them, um, oftentimes they can be less um, powerful. Like it's, it's what we imagine that is actually much, much more scary. Like I have a thing with horror movies where Mm -hmm. I can't watch them because they just, you know, tear me apart. It's, it's horrible. Um, So what I do is I close my eyes and then I listen (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the terrible, like, effective audio work is just incredibly powerful. And what I imagine in my head is even worse than anything people could put on screen. But I do this to myself all the time. Um, but a good villain is kind of kept in the shadows. And what I love about the first, you know, as it's kind of, you know, represented here and then, you know, um, and then in season seven fumbled a little bit. Um, but the idea that it's non corporeal, that here's the thing that cannot physically touch you, but man, it can mentally mess with you like you would not believe. Um, and it also has, you know, all of the the bringers that can that can physically do terrible things as well. Um, dressing it up in dead people 
Like, that's genius. Yeah. That's beautiful. Having the dead speak. Oh, God. I mean, that's so incredibly devastating. Um, and when they bring it out back in season seven, I think it starts out really, really strong. It gets it gets wobbly there towards the middle and the end of the season. But the first is a scary entity as, you know, I get it. You're evil, you know, (laughs) Um, but it is actually kind of like a powerful kind of evil. Um, What do you think about the first? I'm curious to hear your thoughts. I think that what they were, I I think what they were going for was remarkable. Uh, The, the idea that the evil in all of us, Mm-hmm. the evil intrinsic to the universe yeah. that that you know chaos itself as an idea is could be construed as evil and so mm-hmm. the it it uh, it doesn't work through plans or plots necessarily so much as um getting us to do things that we're afraid of or saying terrible things that we fear about ourselves or other people i thought mm-hmm. that was brilliant um, yeah, it just makes it difficult to come up with a season arc. Yeah, you know, uh, mm-hmm. which is why you get um, avatars for the first through the bringers, right. which are less effective and less interesting. As much and as then I eventually Caleb, right? yeah, as mm-hmm. much as I love Nathan Fillion, um, mm-hmm. Caleb has some weird things that I have not worked out for myself because I haven't had to write <laughs> about that season yet. <laughs> right, but there's something that feels a little off about it and a little less threatening, and then. Yeah. When they defeat the army, uh, what happens to the first? Um, yeah. yeah, there are a lot. There are a lot of questions, but just the notion that the biggest big bad that they would ever have to overcome is the big bad inside of everyone yeah. is a mm-hmm. is a really lovely idea. Yeah, I love that too. And when they when they do it as more of an internal, you know, kind of um, infection at the beginning of season seven, I think it's so much more effective. Yes. You know, when they turn people against themselves, you know, um, I think that's incredible. And having Buffy, like one of the things, and I talk about this in the early Still Pretties where I was doing season seven. Um, one of the things that I really love is that, you know, every season we have something Buffy can punch, yeah. you know, and then for the final season to have something Buffy can't punch. You know, that she has to find another way to fight this thing, I think was really, really great. And then we get the the uber vamps and it becomes just something Buffy can punch again, you know. Um, so it kind of like it, it, it sort of misses out on all of the things that could have made it so great. But I think conceptually, I love the first as a concept, you know, and I love that it comes from this this episode that is tied so deeply to like the philosophy behind Buffy, right? you know, even though most of the philosophy stuff, most of the, the direct textual questioning of what is the why ends up moving over into angel, you know, and this is definitely like a pilot for angel, um, you know, because it's so much more philosophical. It's so much more, it's always, it never loses sight of being about the why. Well, it loses sight of some things. Yeah. Sometimes for a while. Angel's a mixed bag. Angel's it's, a it's mixed It's good bag. when it's good. Yeah. It's good when it's good. All right. So, Ian, at the end of every episode, we have a celebration. We talk about what our favorite part is. So, in amends, what's your favorite part? Uh, I think it has to be strong as fighting. Uh, oh, not yeah. not specifically. The, I mean, the scene is wonderful, but that line uh, has such resonance for me mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. personally. And I, I, as we were talking about earlier, um, one of the reasons I think the show has survived for as long as it has and been as resonant and important for people as long as it has is because of theme. Mm-hmm. And as much as the 
um, the ins and outs of being a teenager may change and become dated in the show. That conversation about meaningful life and meaningful existence is, is timeless. Um, and I'm definitely what you might call a high-functioning neurotic. Uh, and sort of the uh, the existential dark uh, is always creeping in. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, whenever I hear that line, I definitely feel my own courage bubbling up. Oh, yeah. No, it's so incredibly great. And, like, for me, my favorite part is just that whole ending run. Like, all of it, you know, am I am I a righteous man? Am I a thing worth saving? It's not the demon in me that needs killing. It's the man. And then Buffy's, I wish I wanted you dead. Like, all of it is so resonant in a way for me that... Um, that I haven't really had that experience before watching it. I'm like, I, I didn't like amends at first because of superficial stuff. Then as I got deeper into it, you know, in a, in a few watches, I was like, nah, it's okay. Now, like that ending thing, which I used to roll my eyes at the <laughs> melodrama. I'm like, I don't care. I'm too old to be cool. I just give it up. Like, I, you know, I don't, if it's melodramatic, I don't care because it, there's stuff there that's happening that is so incredible, so powerful and I absolutely love it. And I'm just going to, you know, hug the Capra out of it. I don't care. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> That's it for today. To join in the discussion on Twitter, follow me at Lonnie Diane Rich and Ian at e- Ian. Ian uh, Nitram. How do you pronounce it? So that? it's Ian Nitram. Uh, it's okay. my name, Ian Martin, with my last name spelled backwards. All right, great. And you can use the hashtag still pretty. Um, and thank you so much for joining us today. It was such a great conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, so can you tell the good people out there where they can find you? Um, I am youtube.com slash passion of the nerd. Uh, Ian Nitram on Twitter. And that's about it. All right. You can keep Chipperish Media going to the tune of a dollar a month or more and gain access to the live chat in Discord where you can hang out with me and Noelle and all of the Chipperish patrons who look great and have the berry working for them. You can also show your support by giving Still Pretty a great review on Apple Podcasts or by telling your friends about the show or by throwing Xander a bone and saying he intimidated you. What the hell, right? It's Christmas. We'll be back next time with Gingerbread, the 11th episode of season three. Until then, all right, we get it. You're evil. Do we have to chat about it all day? (laughs) 